0: How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of
1: your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. What is real is at the core of magic. Because when you see a magic trick, you often think, well, how could you have done that?
0: My name is Joshua Jay, and I've been obsessed with magic since I was seven years old. It's all I've ever done. And now I'm here to share with you how magicians
1: think. This is my mayor culpa. Oh, baby,
2: don't lie for me. If I tell you my story, don't cry
3: for me. I did my time. That's fine right by me. This is my right mayor
1: culpa. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. Well, folks, the showdown is about to begin. The former Trump White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and other top aides subpoenaed by the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol attack are expected to defy orders for documents and testimony related to the January 6th insurrection. Four Trump aides who were hit with subpoenas have a deadline of this Thursday
3: to comply. That includes Bannon and the former chief of staff. Lawmakers are saying that if those don't comply, then the committee will use this criminal referral process to get the DOJ to open a probe which could lead to potentially indictment.
1: The move to defy the subpoenas would mark the first major investigative hurdle faced by the select committee and threatens to touch off an extended legal battle as the former president pushes some of his most senior aides to undercut the inquiry.
2: One thing I can say is the committee will probably, to those who don't agree to come in voluntarily, will do criminal referrals and let that process work
1: out. All four Trump aides targeted by the select committee, that's Meadows Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino, Strategist Steve Bannon, and Defense Department aide Kash Patel are expected to resist the orders because Trump is preparing to direct them to do so. The select committee had issued the subpoenas under the threat of criminal prosecution in the event of noncompliance, warning that the penalty for defying a congressional subpoena would be far graver under the Biden administration than during the Trump presidency.
0: This is something that was missing in the last administration when we saw Congress issuing subpoenas to Trump administration officials, and they simply dragged their feet and thumbed their nose. That means that they can refer to the Justice Department a request to find them in contempt. So the, the Justice Department would actually file charges to to ask a judge to
4: hold them in criminal contempt. It was a non-starter when Bill Barr was the Attorney General, but I think in the Justice Department of Merrick Garland, this is absolutely an option
2: that should be on the table.
1: But increasingly concerned with the far-reaching nature of the January 6th investigation, Trump and his legal team, led by ex-Trump campaign lawyer Justin Clark, the former Deputy White House Counsel Patrick Philbin, are moving to instruct the attorneys for the subpoenaed aides to defy the orders. The basis for Trump's pressing aides to not cooperate is being mounted on grounds of executive privilege, the source said, over claims that sensitive conversations about what he knew in advance of plans to stop the
3: certification of Joe Biden's election victory should remain secret. Donald, I've got very bad news for you. When you engage in sedition against the United States of America, you're not gonna find federal judges that are going to say, you know what? We don't care that he was sitting there and watching the television and cheering on the rioters and refusing to stop the riot. And his, his, his aides were talking behind the scenes. were talking about how all hell was going to break loose the next day. We're working. And even the lawyers were working on theories, which we really haven't talked about enough here, on how to overturn a democratic election. And then how to stop the constitutional counting of the electoral votes on January the 6th. There is no executive privilege for treason. There is no executive privilege for sedition. There is no executive privilege for being engaged in sedition or being a part of sedition or, or, or for encouraging sedition.
1: Trump's strategy mirrors the playbook he used to prevent House Democrats from deposing his top advisors during his presidency. The former White House counsel, Don McGahn, for instance, only testified to Congress about the Mueller inquiry once Trump left office. The president now taking
2: shots at his former White House counsel in a tweet claiming, I was not going to fire Bob Mueller. Actually, lawyer Don McGahn had a better chance of being fired.
1: This after reports that McGahn refused White House requests to publicly say he never believed the president obstructed justice. And as McGahn faces a subpoena from House Democrats demanding both documents and testimony. House select committee investigators have demanded that the four Trump aides turn over emails, call records, and other documents related to the Capitol attack by Thursday and then appear before the panel for closed-door depositions next week. But with the former president expected to insist to Philbin that Meadows, Scavino, Bannon, and Patel mount blanket refusals against the subpoenas, the source said, the select committee at present appears likely to see none of the requests fulfilled.
2: I know the media wants to distract from the Biden administration's failed agenda by focusing on one day in January. They want to use that one day to oh. try and demean uh, the, the the character and intentions of 74 million Americans who believed we could be
0: strong again and prosperous again and supported our administration in 2016. and. In
1: 2020. The move means that House Select Committee investigators now face the key decision over how to enforce the orders and whether they make a criminal referral to the Justice Department after the Thursday's deadline for documents or next
3: week's crunch date for testimony. So we have to have the investigation. We have to have the documents. We have to know what the president knew, when he knew it, what Steve Bannon knew, when he knew it, What all of the present aides knew when they knew it. The House Select Committee
1: Chairman, Benny Thompson, told reporters recently that he was prepared to pursue criminal referrals to witnesses who defied subpoenas and subpoena deadlines as the panel escalates the pace of the evidence-gathering part of its investigation. We'll do whatever the law allows us to do, Thompson said last Friday on the subject of prosecuting recalcitrant witnesses. For those who don't agree to come in voluntarily,
2: we'll do criminal referrals. There's nothing like the threat of going to prison until you cooperate to make reluctant witnesses spill it, come clean. And it's not really going to be that tough. I'm just going to look at phone records. going to talk to
3: people who don't want to go to jail. going to let... The chips fall where they may, because this still is America. The legal battle to force some of Trump's most senior White House aides to
1: comply with the subpoenas, however it is manifested, is likely to lead to constitutional clashes in court that would test the power of Congress's oversight authority over the executive branch. Here's the big question.
4: How hard is Congress willing to fight? And are people like Merrick Garland willing to make bold and courageous and really unusual decisions? For example, if Merrick Garland has to make this decision about whether to charge criminally, nobody has been charged criminally for about 50 years under contempt of Congress. The last several times these decisions Mm. have come to DOJ, they've passed. Well, is Merrick Garland just gonna say, This is the way it's always been done. It's the easier way out. Or is he going to stand up for accountability and for full disclosure here? That's going to be up to him and up to Congress ultimately.
1: But members of the select committee in recent days have expressed quiet optimism, at least about the potential prosecution of witnesses who might defy subpoenas, in part because of the Biden administration's public support for the investigation.
2: The difference between this administration and the Trump administration is that Trump's Justice Department wasn't going to enforce these subpoenas from Congress. Biden's Justice Department has a very different posture. And so a lot of these witnesses are huffing and bluffing, we don't have to come, but make no mistake, The threat of prison will be a powerful incentive. Oh man, the
1: prospect of watching Meadows, Bannon, and the rest of these fucking schmucks being perp-walked into federal jail is almost too thrilling a thought. The select committee said in the subpoena letters to Meadows, Bannon, Scavino, and Patel that they were key persons of interest over what they knew about the extent of Trump's involvement in the Capitol attack which left five people dead and more than 140 injured.
3: We're just trying to fill in the details now, uh, and we are trying to figure out exactly what the connections are between the Trump entourage and the Trump White House and the Oath Keepers, the three percenters, the different armed insurrectionist groups, um, and who paid for the attack on the U.S. Congress, because you don't knock over the capital of the United States of America for free.
1: Meadows, the former White House Chief of Staff, remains of special interest to House Select Committee investigators since he was involved in efforts to subvert the results of the 2020 election and remained by Trump's side as rioters stormed the Capitol in his name. He was also in contact with Patel at the Defense Department, the select committee asserted, and communicated with members of the Women for America First group that planned the stop the steal rally that deteriorated into the January 6th insurrection.
2: January 6th insurrection was not a spontaneous event. It's not just like thousands of insurrectionists just showed up and decided right then and there to take over the capital. There was obviously financing, organization, administration, and the select committee has subpoenaed literally thousands and thousands of documents and some of Trump's closest allies, including his chief of staff, Mark Meadows and Steve Bannon. So they want to know what the relationship is between the White House and the insurrectionists. Did they coordinate and plan together?
1: Scavino, the former White House deputy chief of staff, became a person of interest after it emerged that he met with Trump the day before the Capitol attack to discuss how to persuade members of Congress not to certify the election according to his subpoena letter.
4: The committee, though, still can't find find Dan Scavino. Two weeks after issuing him a subpoena, right? This was the social media, you know, guru of the Trump administration. Obviously, Scavino is keeping himself scarce, not necessarily easy to do, but that's the strategy here. How unusual is that, and will it work? Well, it's bizarre, but it's also deliberate. Let's be clear about what this is. This is the delay strategy. It is a strategy and it is intentional. And the thing is, Aaron, it has worked for Donald Trump and his people before. If you look at when Congress tried to investigate after the Mueller report, when they tried to investigate the first impeachment over Ukraine, these things got bogged down in the courts and they took months, even years. And as a result, Congress really got next to nowhere with those investigations. So it seems clear this is what Scavino is trying to do. If he was willing to testify or even play ball, he could easily make himself available. And so again, Congress needs to be ready to fight here and they need to be ready to move very quickly because Trump and his people are trying to run out the clock.
1: The select committee said in the subpoena letter to Bannon that they wanted to hear from Trump's former chief strategist, who was present at the Willard Hotel on January 5th, to strategize with Trump campaign officials how to stop the election certification.
3: All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's gonna be moving, it's gonna be quick, this is not a day for fantasy, this is a day for maniacal focus. Focus, focus, focus. We're coming in right over the target, okay? Exactly, this is the point of attack we always wanted.
1: Patel, meanwhile, is under scrutiny since he was involved in Pentagon discussions about security at the Capitol before and after the riot. The select committee added that they also were examining reports Trump tried to install him as the deputy CIA director. It was only a matter of time before the gloves come off. Now that Trump has thrown a punch in response to the January 6th committee's subpoenas, the question remains whether or not they'll punch back and use the full force of the Justice Department and the ability to impose criminal penalties for those that defy subpoenas. Anything less will be an abdication to Trump's bullying and abject disregard for law and order.
4: I hear the train are coming, it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging
1: on. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa, Matthew Van Dyke, is an absolutely fascinating individual whose story has flown largely under the radar, despite the incredible, almost fucking unbelievable nature of his heroic exploits. In 2011, after graduating from Georgetown University, Matthew Van Dyke traveled to Libya during the uprisings that followed the Arab Spring to fight against the regime of Muammar Gaddafi in the Libyan revolution as an American freedom fighter and soldier in the National Liberation Army. He was wounded and captured by Gaddafi's forces and spent nearly six months as a prisoner of war where he was routinely tortured in two of Libya's most notorious prisons before ultimately escaping. He had the choice to return to his Maryland home, but instead chose to stay and fight, returning to the front and active combat until the revolution was over. His experiences are the subject of the documentary film Point and Shoot, which won the 2014 Tribeca Film Festival Best Documentary Award. In 2012, Van Dyke traveled to Syria to make a documentary film about the war, entitled... Not anymore, a story of revolution. The film has been shown at hundreds of film festivals and has won over 100 awards. Van Dyke founded the security firm Sons of Liberty International in 2014 after two of his friends, journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, were beheaded by ISIS. The group, which operates as a non-profit and has no connection to the United States military, began as a way to help Iraqi Christians fight ISIS, but grew into a formidable organization that fights against tyranny and authoritarian regimes worldwide. Van Dyke, who has no formal military training, is currently advising the National Unity Government in Myanmar, the rebel group in exile, fighting to restore democracy in their country. Van Dyke joins me on Maya culpa just before he is to fly back to another war zone. He is most interested in speaking about the January 6th insurrection and is angry about what he calls those traitors misusing and misunderstanding the concept of a revolution. As an expert on authoritarianism, he examines the current MAGA movement and hopes to understand how these folks were radicalized and used by Trump and his inner circle. So get ready for a fascinating hour, and let's go now to that conversation. So Matthew, before we get into some of my questions, I was hoping that you could introduce yourself to my listeners, because you have such a remarkable story. So if you would do me the favor, and can you tell us how you came to start Sons of Liberty, and why and what the organization is up to today?
0: My name is Matthew Van Dyke. And I started Sons of Liberty International in 2014. Uh, it, was, it was a long road to the founding of that organization. I graduated from, from Georgetown with a master's degree in security studies. And I was originally on a track to work in the intelligence community. But I had some differences with U.S. foreign policy at the time. So I decided instead to get a motorcycle and head over to North Africa and the Middle East and see the areas that I've been studying. I ended up over four years traveling by motorcycle from Morocco and Mauritania in West Africa all the way to Afghanistan, uh, including Iraq and Iran. Um, It was uh, extremely difficult. Uh, Georgetown had not prepared me for the realities on the ground of what I experienced, but I learned a lot and I made a lot of friends, including in Libya. So in 2011, when Libyans started the revolution, I got in contact with my friends in Libya and One of them said to me, why doesn't anybody help us? So I I thought about it a little bit, and I said I'd be there. So I flew over to Libya, met up with friends, joined the revolution. Uh, I was captured on a reconnaissance mission early in the war. Uh, I was wounded and captured, knocked unconscious. I woke up in a prison cell hearing someone being tortured in the cell above me. And from there, I spent nearly six months as a prisoner of war in solitary confinement uh, in two different prisons in Libya. The U.S. government had no idea where I was. Nobody knew if I was dead or alive. And uh, it was a pretty hopeless situation. And then one day, prisoners were escaping the prison. They broke the lock off my cell and we escaped after nearly six months. And, you know, uh, I decided after meeting up with uh, one of my Libyan friends, he flew to Tripoli to, to, uh, to come see me after I escaped prison. I stayed in Libya. And I decided that, You know, I made a commitment to the men I was captured with that I would not leave Libya until Libya was free. So I remained in Libya. I returned to the front line to combat. I became a heavy machine gunner uh, on a Jeep and infantry and fought in the war until Qaddafi was defeated. Now, after that, I went to Syria um, in support of the revolution. I made a film in support of that revolution, uh, a, a short documentary called Not Anymore, Story of Revolution. And I had come back from Syria, and I was focused on that film when uh, friends I had made during my time in Libya, journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, uh, they were American journalists. I had met James soon after escaping in prison. He had also been in prison in Libya, I had been imprisoned as a fighter. So our experiences have been a bit different. But we had bonded over the prison experience and become friends in Libya. Uh, and Stephen Sotloff, another American journalist who I got to know after the war, but also in Libya that they'd been kidnapped in Syria in 2012. And in 2014, ISIS executed them. They were the two journalists that were beheaded on video. And so, you know, in reaction, I, I thought about what can I do to take on ISIS? And I knew I had good contacts with U.S. military veterans, um, both because of contacts I made as a result of uh, Libya and and the films that came out after Libya about my experience. And also when I'd been briefly a journalist in in Iraq and Afghanistan embedded with U.S. forces. So I had good contacts there. I had an academic background. I had experience on the ground. And most importantly, I had experience fighting in, in these conflicts. So I founded a 501c3 nonprofit organization called Sons of Liberty International to train, equip, advise forces that were fighting against ISIS and against authoritarian regimes. So our first mission was in Iraq. Uh, We started covertly. The US government didn't know we were there for the first few months. Uh, We started working with the Iraqi Assyrian Christian community uh, because nobody was helping them. The Kurds had plenty of support. Um, The Iraqi government had support, but nobody was helping this group that had had their ancestral homeland for thousands of years, thousands of years taken over by ISIS. So we started working with them and we, we took them from an idea that they had, that they wanted their own force to their own army of uh, hundreds. Uh, we helped them build a military base. We did plenty of missions with them over four years. And by the end of it, they were able to help liberate their land from ISIS, uh, recapture uh, all their territory, And provide security. Now, the Iraqi government has made them a permanent part of the Iraqi security forces. So it was a a long lasting, uh, sustainable solution. So we've taken that model. We did work in the Philippines in counterterrorism. Uh, We've done some covert operations that I can't talk about, but that uh, occasionally you might read in the New York Times something that we were behind, but people don't know we were behind it. But we've also uh, started working in Myanmar more recently. Uh, we're advising the National Unity Government, which is the rebel government of Myanmar, will be on the ground there providing military training to the forces fighting to restore democracy in that country. And uh, all of our workmen overseas, we do a little bit of work in the United States. We've trained uh, some rabbis at synagogues to provide security um, to, to to their synagogues. We would do that for other other religious groups also or, or organizations that are facing threats Um but most of our work is is overseas and primarily focused now on fighting against authoritarian regimes now that, that ISIS
1: has been defeated. Okay, so I now have a million questions for you. Because this is one of the most spectacular stories I've I've heard, which is why I'm thankful that you decided to join me on this podcast on Maya Culpa, because when I was reading about you, I was saying one of two things. This guy is truly a humanitarian. Well, oh, this guy's fucking crazy, right? I mean, it's one or the other. You don't have military experience, correct? Uh, other than fighting in Libya, no. But Right. So prior to going to Libya, and I suspect that was in the first civil war, in 2011? Yes,
0: yes. My, okay. my military but experience pro- in, before Libya had been limited to academic studies. And while I was embedded with U.S. forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, I asked them to take me to the range. So- I learned a few things, but actually at the Libyan revolution, very few fighters had military experience. There were some units that defected, but Gaddafi's army was mostly shining their boots before that anyway. So I was actually one of the few people in my group that had actually fired a weapon at the
1: beginning of the war. But you never fired that type of weapon. I mean, that's a high high capacity, you know, um, really, it's a, I mean... That, that's a that's a true weapon it's not like shooting uh, a 22 or you know even a 40 caliber handgun i mean you know that anybody can go to any range you know and and fire uh, but what you were talking about is like really a high capacity significant weapon
0: right yeah it's a, a Russian dishka, which is like a 50 cal and during the war i also used rpgs and and small arms ak but but it's really um, one of the things about the Libyan Revolution, and in a way, it was remarkable, but also typical of revolutions, is that most of the fighters were citizen soldiers who the first time they had picked up a weapon was during that. So you know the the guys that I was fighting with, they might have been a, a, a barber or a taxi driver or a student the week earlier. And the next week there, you know, some of them might be driving tanks, literally driving tanks. Um, so it was it was it was an incredible experience, an incredible time. But that military experience has actually been incredibly useful because I find, you know, all of the trainers that I bring over, U.S. military veterans, uh, to do the training. But a lot of the interaction with the leadership and advising I do and uh, some of the training, I bring my perspective of having fought in similar situations as the people we train. So it's, it's a type of military experience as, as unique, but uniquely suited to what we do with the organization.
1: So you were part of a rebel group. That was fighting Gaddafi, right, uh, in order to oust his government. Yes. Okay. Now, I understand people fighting for their country. What gave you the impetus in order to, you know, travel overseas? United States government had no idea where you were, that you were involved in this. And I don't suspect that they probably would have permitted it had, you know, had you advised them. Uh, They certainly would have tried to stop you. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. We've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable... Make sure to check out last Thursday's episode with artificial intelligence expert Kai-Fu Lee on his vision for our future with AI. You won't want to miss this fascinating look into the future of mankind. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests, and there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show, like Check out September 7th interview with former FBI Special Agent Jack Schaefer on influencing, attracting, and winning people over. Take these tips and apply them directly to your own life. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode on how to deal with corrupt and crooked bosses, addiction, brain chemistry, and so much more. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But what gave you the, the fortitude to decide that you were going to pick yourself up from, you know, Georgetown, from, right, D.C., and head over to Libya?
0: Well, I just finished the, the four years of, of living and filming and, and uh, being on the motorcycle in that region. And of all the countries i had been to, I guess it was about a dozen countries, Libya was a place that i had always felt most second at home at, and that I made the best friendships, and that I kept in touch with my friends there. So it was really personal to me that my friends needed help. And they had an opportunity to finally get rid of, of a dictator that had ruled over their country for 42 years. And at the time that I went over, NATO wasn't involved, the US wasn't involved, nobody was involved. So that's why they said, why doesn't anybody help us? It was really just them and then me as well against the regime uh, and against the regime's military. So it was it was partly personal. It was partly ideological. Um, I had seen the effects of authoritarianism throughout the region during all my travels. And I knew that this was a unique moment of change that, that if it could happen for Libya, uh, it would really improve the lives of people I cared about. So to me, it, it made Complete sense that I would go. There was no question. I was just going to sit back and not help help people I cared about.
1: I can understand that. If you would describe for me what the conditions were like in solitary there in Libya, because as you know, right now I'm on home confinement. I have uh, you know 51 days left uh, on this home confinement. But while I was there in Otisville, I spent 51 days in solitary confinement, and the conditions, clearly, that I was subjected to, despite the fact that they're abhorrent, broken window flies in there, a 100 degrees, no ventilation, right? The food was subpar garbage that you couldn't even eat. The toilets were broken. The sinks were filthy. Um, you know, there was no movement at all. So I never got out of that cell. I have PTSD. There's no doubt about it. I still to this day, even though that I've been out because of COVID from the institution, um, I have PTSD. I don't sleep through the nights. Uh, You know, sometimes, you know, there are horrific, you know, dreams and memories. I still have the flashing of the lights in my eyes. That's nothing compared to what I believe you probably experienced. I would love for you to explain to me what the solitary um, confinement conditions were there in Libya.
0: It was different, but I, I hear some similarities that people in solitary are, are uh, experience. Um, I like the lights that you still see. There was a period of time where I, when I closed my eyes, I could still see the, the pattern of the bars on the cell where the lights came through. But solitary, my, my first prison cell was about three or four feet wide by about seven feet long with a hole in the ceiling for light. Uh, at night, I could hear people being violently interrogated. Um, I had no idea if I would ever be released. I thought I wouldn't be. They didn't tell me what I was accused of. They didn't tell me if I would ever stand trial, if I was going to be executed. I'd spend nights rehearsing um, what I would say in response to interrogation or torture. I, I, I really... That was one of the worst parts was not knowing what my fate was and whether the footsteps coming out of the hall were the, the execution squad or not. Uh, the conditions themselves, I mean, I had no books, nothing to do, but stare at the wall for about half a year with my own thoughts. Um, after about three months in that first cell, I was moved to another prison, where I was also in solitary. Now in the first prison cell, they let me out to use the bathroom three times a day. And eventually when I started being unsteady on my feet, they let me walk pace back and forth in a locked off hallway. Once in a while, once I got in the, the second prison cell for about the other half of the time at the other prison, it was solitary and it was similar to your experience where once they closed that door, I wasn't getting out again and they just hand food through the slot in the door. And, uh, and there was a bathroom in the, in the cell, um, I had flies. There were maggots. Um, my my toilet flooded, all over the floor, um, and then they did move me to another cell. But you know, it was it was horrific conditions. The food wasn't that good, and then Ramadan happened. So then it was everybody was fasting, uh, and food was only brought at night. But I'd save it to eat throughout the day, uh, since I'm I'm not Muslim. Um, but really the worst part was hearing the sounds of other prisoners in anguish um, you know and I didn't want anybody to know that I was American because at the first prison I never heard or I could hear people through the walls, but I wasn't aware there were no other prisoners on my cell block. Second prison there were prisoners down the hallway, but I dared not make a sound because I was worried if they found out that the an American was on their cell block that I was worried Gaddafi would execute those prisoners for having that knowledge. So I sat there as quiet as I could, not letting anybody know anything about me, not trying to communicate with other prisoners because of that, because I was afraid that they would, they would suffer the consequences of knowing that I even existed. The guards didn't even know I was American until later on when they asked. Um, it was really, they just threw me in prison, and threw away the key and left me there. I thought I wouldn't get out until I was 50 or 60 years old, if ever. And, I had no idea that NATO ever got involved in the war because that happened after I had been captured. So there was really no hope. All I knew is that force I was in had been overrun, the city I was overrun at. I woke up in a prison cell. I had no clear memory of the actual capture. I had a scar on my head from getting hit probably with a, the butt of an AK-47. And and that was going to be the rest of my life.
1: Wow. You know, I have to tell you, the, one of the big differences, of course, is we had access to Books. Though I do have to tell you, probably the most painful memory for me in solitary, despite, you know, the room is a little bit bigger than yours, is the only book that I had to read when I first got remanded back to the solitary, uh, after the unconstitutional remand of me, uh, you know, by Trump and Bill Barr, uh, for refusing to waive my First Amendment constitutional right was having to read John Bolton's book, The Room Where It Happened. That was painful, you know, and I'm not sure if I'll ever get over that. It could have been, I mean, I've described reading that book like pulling nose hair. It hurts. Every (laughs) page I turn. I was like, what the fuck? I'm like, this is such bullshit. This is another narcissistic egomaniac talking about how he was the most important guy in the room, including more than that of Trump and how Trump would always reflect back to him and tell him, oh, you got to speak to John. John's the guy who knows everything. Listen, I know Trump better, and I know that that's a bunch of bullshit. Because Trump never compliments anybody, especially not when you're around. So if he's going to compliment you, Matt, he would compliment you to me, but never you, never him to you. You know, so that was that was always tough. But I did get to read it 97 books. It could have
0: been worse, though, Michael. What if you got back to your style and the art of the deal was sitting there?
1: Oh. I did I did read 97 books but I, I look I I read The Art of the Deal twice uh, going back into 1987 when it first came out and then again in 88 but I have to tell you if I never saw that book again it would be too soon All right So let me ask you this. Earlier in the week, you sent through an email that included excerpts from your side of a conversation that you had with one of your board members who was very critical of how the Biden administration's Afghanistan withdrawal uh, took place. Now, you describe it as an unmitigated success with a mix of diplomatic and military prowess that will be taught at West Point someday. If you would, walk us through your conversation and how your point of view differs from what's being screamed on Fox News, Newsmax, OAN, and what we're witnessing in the congressional hearings that are going on right now.
0: Well, the main, the main critics of the withdrawal are focusing on uh, Americans left behind, equipment left behind, and having negotiated with the Taliban. Now, the first point of Americans left behind, most of those Americans, if not all, were Afghan-Americans who didn't want to leave their extended families behind, which is understandable, but they were choosing to remain, um, hoping that that would pressure the US to grant the visas for everybody or that they could get out afterwards. The equipment left behind, that wasn't US equipment. The US destroyed the equipment at the airport. The equipment left behind was equipment given to the Afghan army. So critics who say, how can we leave behind billions of dollars in equipment? Do they want us to airstrike the Afghan army once they started losing? they want us to bomb the Taliban once they capture bases and then not be able to get our Americans out. And the third criticism of the, the strangest one is the negotiating with the Taliban. You have the Americans at the airport surrounded by the Taliban. All it would take is the Taliban each day firing some mortars or rockets to crater the runway, damage aircraft, make the airlift completely impossible. And forced the U.S. to literally fight its way to a land border to get out of the country. The Biden administration knew knew that Mullah Baradar, who was, for all for all purposes, running the Taliban, had aspirations of the Taliban being a legitimate government recognized by the international community. He played on those on on those desires by Baradar. Um, There was conflict between Baradar and Haqqani, uh, who runs the the al-Qaeda faction in the Taliban, essentially, that actually allegedly led to them getting a fistfight. But the Biden administration played a carrot and stick diplomacy that was absolutely brilliant. I mean, they went from bombing the Taliban a few weeks earlier to sometimes the Taliban literally carrying the luggage of Americans on their way to the airport to leave the country. Uh, it's extraordinary. And, you know, at, at the beginning, I, I had written a tweet early on where I, I compared to the fall of Saigon and I was really outraged the first 24 hours of it. And then I started to see what the, what the administration was doing and how they started pulling this off. And it really changed my perspective after I saw 120,000 Americans evacuate, the largest airlift in history. It's a military operation that I'm sure will be studied at the military academies. Um, minimal loss of life. The loss of life was tragic, but you know, for what was accomplished, and given the risk, being surrounded by by the enemy in, in an airport that's easily hit at any time, Taliban could have shut down that operation. And Somehow, the Biden administration managed to carry and stick diplomacy them until until we could evacuate 120,000 people. It's
1: in fact the. The way the records, Hollywood
0: wouldn't even believe it if you tried to put in a script. You
1: could not. And interestingly enough, the numbers that I saw in terms of the airlift is 125,000. And I love listening to the Tucker Carlsons of the world, the Sean Hannity's, the Laura Ingram's, the, you know, Laura Trump's and uh, sitting there. And they all play off of the same misinformation. That the United States left the Taliban with $60 billion worth of machinery and equipment. That's just not true. And then worse than that, you have this former guy, this narcissistic, egomaniac, ignorant, arrogant, bloviated fucknut sit there and turn around and say, we're leaving them the most beautiful Apache helicopters you've ever seen. That's not fucking true. It's just a straight up lie. And the guy lies with impunity every single time he opens his mouth. And so I listen to educated people who really don't read. They just listen to Fox. And then Fox continues to promote this ongoing, continuous lie, right? As if fact that you're based, it's based upon facts and reality. We did not leave Apache helicopters. And whatever, whatever equipment that was left either was disassembled, Right. Had no technology in it, was rusted out, is in desperate need of repairs, which in all fairness, the Taliban does not have uh, in order to make them operational. Right. So it's basically
2: it's basically
1: rusted metal. That's a
0: very good point. The, The maintenance, a lot of that equipment within the year, they won't be able to have even the Humvees running. They, those countries are historically horrible at maintaining their equipment, which is part of the reason that Arab countries are always losing wars to Israel. Uh, their planes generally can't get off the ground. They're not maintained. helicopters. The few helicopters they have are extremely sophisticated equipment that, they're, that they can't maintain. They don't have the parts. They don't have a supply line for parts. They don't have the expertise. They don't, generally don't maintain their vehicles, uh, militaries in that part of the world very well. Um, at the beginning of the Libyan conflict, part of what took us a while to get going is uh, in the east of the country, the units that defected had plenty of tanks, but they weren't working. Um, you know, We went and modified our, our Toyota Hilux truck in one of the military hangars in the base with some of the um, units that defected, and very few of the tanks worked. They were stripping parts off of tanks. Um, welding on extra armor just out of steel plate, like this is going to be the Taliban is going to be a, a mix and match bargain bin of parts stuck from one vehicle on another and most of it not working. So the point you're making about maintenance is, is very good and you know it's uh, shocking the more military experts haven't been saying that on the news, but then again, not all that shocking because they're not, not
1: shocking it. to me not shocking to me either and what is interesting to note, know- is if, in fact, there were helicopters that were left, show me one video. There's enough people there that they have on the ground, including journalists, that if there was an Apache, a U.S. Apache helicopter flying, somebody would video record it and put it up or send it to Fox or, again, Newsmax or OAN or somebody. They would put it up there. But you don't see that. You know why? Because it's not happening. Right. That's the whole thing. It is a great talking point for the Republicans, for these right wing, you know, um, conspiracy theorists that we left 60 billion dollars. First of all, the equipment's not 60 billion dollars. And even if there were helicopters that were left, all of the technology is taken out of the equipment anyway. Right. Or they blow it up. Now, you were you're right when you said this is going to be studied in the future by many, many academies, not just obviously West Point, but many. Why? In two weeks to move 125,000 people, I was so impressed with Joe Biden's 26-minute speech. And I loved there was a line that he used. I don't think enough people understand how much we've asked of the 1% of this country who put that uniform on. I don't think that they do. And the fact that we lost 13 people, it is a shame. It is an absolute shame. It should never have happened. But then again, here's another line that he used. There's nothing low grade or low risk or low cost about any war. It's time to end the war in Afghanistan. The fact that some people unfortunately were killed as a result of a bomber, right? Of a, um, of a, a vest bomber. Um, there's no way to protect that. This is still war, despite the fact that they were moving people out at an insane rate. There was still an ongoing war in Afghanistan. How many? How many Americans have been killed in Afghanistan? How many of our of our allies? How many of their troops were killed, disfigured, maimed, etc. And it's certainly a lot. But, you know, what I love is the fact that you have all of these Republicans jumping onto that same bandwagon of conversation about these 13 as if they give a shit about any of them, because not one of these Republicans know a single service member's name. But what about the 13 people that died in the Bronx? All right. Um, As a result of um, you know of these um, drug wars that are going on, or these random shootings, right? Or in Chicago, or the number of kids that overdosed as a result of these fentanyl, these fake fentanyl pills that are going around. Aren't you worried about them too? Why is it only fixating on these 13 service members that unfortunately lost their life? It's really a disgrace. They're They're using their death for their benefit, and that's disgraceful.
0: Right. They're using that as props, and they all pretend like the war just started when Biden became
1: president on top of it. And it's absolutely inaccurate. And by the way, who was the one that actually started the discussion uh, for the withdrawal? in the That was Donald Trump. You see, look, I say this a lot, despite the fact that the guy is a raging lunatic he's in idiot beyond an idiot. It was the right thing to end this war. The problem is, if Trump was still the president at this time, you would never have seen 125,000 people evacuated from Afghanistan. It's the right idea, the wrong messenger, meaning Trump, because he'll never put forth a plan and he will never listen to the generals because his gut knows better than the generals all about war and he knows more about the military than anybody because the guy knows more about everything than everybody. He'll tell you that he knows more than the scientists about this coronavirus. He knows more about medicine than the doctors that treated him. Somewhere along the line, you know, it must be his connection to the almighty whereby, you know, through some Form of osmosis, he manages to suck in all of this information without ever picking up a book because I'm not even sure if the fucking guy can read. And he certainly doesn't have the patience in order to sit there and to read a book. We can't tell you what to dress up for Halloween, but we can tell you that you can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes at Policy Genius. If someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, an aging parent, or even a business partner, you need life insurance. To properly provide for their families, most people need 10 times the life insurance coverage that they get through their employer. Policy genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. So why compare? Because you could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with policy genius. You could save $1,300 or more per year on life insurance just by using Policy Genius to compare policies. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies, so you could trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius thousands of five star reviews across Trustpilot and Google and eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical exam requirement for a simple phone call. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes Advisor, higher than options from Ladder, Ethos, and Besto. Getting started is easy. First, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. When you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. Policy Genius doesn't add on any extra fees. So head to policygenius.com to get started right now. That's Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right.
0: It's a good point about what would have happened if we had a Trump administration instead of a Biden administration in that position? The key to that operation was the quiet diplomacy. It was keeping your mouth shut, not to embarrass or piss off the Taliban, while at the same time manipulating the Taliban behind the scenes using diplomacy. If Trump had been president, really, he would have come out blustering, talking big, angered the Taliban, and possibly gotten the entire operation shut down. In addition to possibly being so arrogant as to not even want to, engage with the Taliban in the first place, which was in this necessary component of getting our people out. Um, But then, and the agreement, the agreement you look at, I looked at the terms of the agreement today again, 5,000 Taliban prisoners, this is the the Trump agreement with the Taliban, which was what bolstered their force to allow them to to engage in the offensive that led to the fall of the Afghan government, and 5,000 Taliban prisoners for 1,000 Afghan forces prisoners in exchange, and not including the U.S., Navy sailor, veteran, who had been kidnapped by the Taliban just a month before these negotiations. He wasn't part of the deal to have him released. He's still being held by the Taliban, allegedly. Um, A five to one deal just on the prisoner exchange wasn't a good deal. I don't know what's in the art of the deal. I haven't read it, but I have a hard time believing that that was a good deal by any measure.
1: Don't worry, because he didn't write that either. But let me just move on and ask you, because earlier this week, the New York Times reported that the CIA was recalling its Vienna station chief over his handling of what they referred to as the Havana syndrome. Now, I've read a few items on Twitter where you've spoken about the mysterious affliction, but I was hoping for my listeners that you could explain what it might be and how it's being used as a weapon.
0: The, the main theory is that it's a directed energy weapon, Um, either auditory or using something along the lines of microwaves. Um, It could also be a type of audio surveillance that has side effects, but that's not as likely. Uh, It started in Cuba. It's gone to other places. It's been used against diplomats, against uh, spies who also work out of embassies. Uh, And other U.S. personnel. It has caused long-term health effects, but... The great mystery is where it's coming from and who's doing it. It's something that, in my belief, the government that's doing it, almost surely is a government because it's taking place all over the world, is doing it with no fear of being caught and no fear of repercussions. Possibly it's air-based, possibly it's uh, satellite-based, but the general going consensus on the theory of, of what's really happening here is probably directed microwaves. Um, it's a type of technology that the U.S. experimented with decades ago um, with various levels of success. It's not something that was pursued too much. Uh, it's It would be more of a nuisance, but its greater effect is it puts fear into people working at embassies and, and consulates overseas. You know, the, the going theory is that's Russia or China as usual. It's probably Russia, but if it is if they are using aircraft or satellite to do it, it's unlikely we'll be able to figure out exactly who's doing it. If we knew who was doing it, we'd probably say, um, this is a, a, a breach of diplomatic protocol, not quite an act of war, but, but a quite serious offense. And they must be doing it in a way that is not driving a panel van up outside an embassy because they're too be, much risk getting caught. So that's why my theory is that it's coming uh, from aircraft or satellite, but. You know, unless somebody in in uh, the intelligence ministry of whatever country is doing it snitches, it's unlikely we're going to find out anytime soon.
1: Yeah, and that I think will ultimately happen. You know, there's always somebody that has loose lips, and we all know loose lips sink ships. And then we'll ultimately find out. And like I said, you know, we do have the best intelligence, uh, you know, gathering teams in this in this in the world, and so hard for me to imagine that they don't know. How it's being um, implemented and who's doing it, but
0: you would who you knows? Would think, you would think. Do you be surprised at the amount of questions I get asked when I come from a, a mission overseas with my organization that makes me think the U.S. government really does know not as much as we would hope that they do know.
1: Well, since conflicts. you know a lot, right. well, since you know a lot, I then want to talk to you for a moment about the January sixth insurrection right? As someone who fought in an actual revolution and trains individuals to fight authoritarianism, how does the rhetoric around what happened that day make you feel?
0: This is going to get me in trouble with my donors, probably 95% of whom are Trump supporters. Uh, You know, January 6th was when I, I stopped keeping my silence about how I felt about the Trump administration. One of the biggest challenges really that I faced in the in the four years of that administration, while running my organization, was staying quiet uh, because all the networks were good to me. Fox News was very good to me, um, and my donors ninety five percent are probably Trump supporters. I've had donors quit because of my views on Trump, um, but January sixth was something that that just crossed a line for me. That was an authority a ruler with authoritarian tendencies which Trump had, which is the one one good thing I could see from the administration is that it gives the world an insight into the authoritarian mind where you can see what authoritarian rulers, like my organization is against, would do if they had... Uh, you see what they would... You see what they do, but you see it in America because we have a free press. So things that happen in other countries where... The leader goes against journalists. The leader tries to gut other institutions of government. The Leader tries to exert control over the judiciary, the military. Everything that Trump did is the same thing Bashar Assad does, is the same thing Putin does, is the same thing every dictator does. But because we have a, a free press in this country, we got to see it. And because we had institutions like the judiciary and Congress that could check that power, and because we had impeachment proceedings, we could see it. So it offers a fascinating insight into that mentality of an authoritarian. But back to January 6th, to run an organization that seeks to overthrow governments, which is mostly what what we're focused on now, but authoritarian governments, not democratically elected ones, and to see the people that we work with and we train and we advise put everything on the line and their family's safety, knowing that if they get captured, they're not going to you know, go up before a judge and, and get bail or not get bail, but basically get a slap on the wrist, but they're going to be tortured and possibly executed and possibly their whole family's executed. To see people who make real sacrifices and fight real wars and real revolutions for real stakes and real causes, and to see a bunch of losers storm the Congress, attack cops, wipe their feces on the walls, just, it's an attack against all Americans. It's really even an attack against people that support January 6th, even if they don't understand it's an attack against them. But it's something that's so offensive and breaks the tradition that we have of a peaceful transfer of power that it's just an affront to everything that, that I personally believe in um, and that America was founded on. And it was something that once that line was crossed and Trump was the essential piece of it and the cause of it, that's when I, I could no longer stay silent about that. So, really, There's a few topics that make me more angry than that. Um, I view it as the worst incident of domestic terrorism in this country. And although Oklahoma City had had more casualties, this was something that was not an act of political protest. This was an attack on the very foundation of our government. And it was an attack by so many people. It wasn't a lone wolf. It was hundreds of people that that day became terrorists, became insurrectionists, and who should suffer far greater consequences for it than they are
1: yeah thousands actually not even hundreds but on that thought because you look one of the things that you described when you were first talking about um, your organization sons of Liberty is you are an expert in training revolutionary forces and obviously now I know what your opinion is on these um, on the actions taken by some of these so-called wannabe militia groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and others. Now, many people have referred to them as a bunch of clowns, you know, playing this um, militia, this, um, you know, homegrown militia group. But do you see something more frightening here and potentially more dangerous? For example, what if they had somebody like yourself properly training them and equipping them to do real things, to do real harm? You know, one of the things that I always talk about on Maya Culpa is, look, Donald's not going to run in 2024. But the thing that we have to remember is who's going to replace him. Who's going to be that Donald Trump 2.0, somebody who's slicker and smarter and better funded with real money behind them, right? What happens now if they bring on somebody with your qualifications or, you know, others who have the ability to train them to be more professional as this paramilitary group?
0: I've thought about that. I still have confidence that There's enough Americans that stand up against them on their own, that they don't have the widespread popular support, um, and that our institutions are strong enough to protect against that, whether it's our security forces or our institutions of government. Um, But I, I have thought before, what if Trump had actually been a stable genius? What if he had been hardworking? What if he had been capable? And what if those ambitions that he had... And the actions that he took have been backed up by actual competency and, and the ability to actually put into action everything that he dreamed of doing. Uh, and that's a dangerous thought. It's a dangerous thought. What would have happened if there had been a terrorist attack, a nuclear attack, or, or some large disaster in D.C. that wiped out the judiciary and the Congress at the same time and left only the executive while Trump was in power? That would have been the end of democracy in the United States. Enough of the military supported Trump that we would have been on a path towards potential civil war or definitely very dark days for the country without the other two branches of government to balance out his ambition. So as far as the, uh, the people that stormed the Capitol, I see it as an extension of the militia movement in the 1990s, and we might see some, some Waco or Ruby Ridge-type incidents. Uh, I don't think that they have... <sighs> the staying power or the widespread appeal or the intellect to really pull off anything too serious or to be a threat. But the main problem is that there's a large part of the country that tacitly agrees with them in a lot of ways, including politicians that, that see that mentality as a path to wider support or watered down version of that mentality. And it's just a race to the bottom with them. And, and, and that's what I fear. I, I never thought that I'd see so many otherwise good people go down a bad path as I have, as I did in the, in the, the four years of the Trump administration. And, and I think about people, you know, my, my, my parents voted for Trump. The family friends, all I'm, I'm visiting my parents now. The family friends here all support Trump. So I overhear their conversations. I overhear them making comments during Fox News. And I know how they think these are the kindest people in the world, the most generous, kindest people who have been captivated by what has become a movement or a mentality of Trump. That that it makes me think, how could people who profess to be Christian who are and who go to church and and have all these good ideals in the rest of their life, how their politics could turn so dark? Well the
1: cult of Trump the cult of Trumpism is strong. Believe me. I know I was I was high up there in the cult. And I can tell you it's very strong. And I don't know if I would say that it's simply predicated. It's predicated on a bulk of different things: racism, sexism, misogyny, xenophobia, homophobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, whatever, whatever that deep secret that is in your soul that makes you wanna hate another person, Trump has the ability to pull that shit right out of you and make you be the worst version of yourself, which is exactly what he was as president, the worst version of himself imaginable. Ever receive a call, text, or email from someone posing as an IRS agent, a police officer, or the power company demanding payment by gift card? Well, if you have, and I have, you're probably being targeted for a gift card scam. These fraudsters trick victims into sending online gift cards or reading the numbers from a gift card over the phone. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives. We do a lot more online these days. Unfortunately, cybercriminals are always looking for ways to take your information. Norton 360 with LifeLock provides all-in-one protection in the digital world with device security that helps block cyber criminals from stealing your personal information that's stored on your devices. A VPN to help keep information you send over Wi-Fi safe. And LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your information and alerts you to potential threats. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock as I do, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off at norton.com slash Cohen. But I want to say something, because you said that, you know, this could be a dangerous um, interview for you. And the 95 percent of your supporters, your donors are Trump supporters. Right. How did these folks view what happened that day, January 6th? And how did they justify the violence? Because I've never been able to get anybody to answer that question.
0: Right. Well, to start, the reason that the 95 percent of my donors now are Trump supporters is our first mission was helping Iraqi Christians. So they were drawn to the aspect of Christians. And a lot of my early fundraising was done on Fox News. So that's that's sort of become my my base of support for the past missions and the current missions as well. Um, They don't take January 6th seriously. When I was in a discussion with the board member, he said Ashley Babbitt was unnecessarily killed. Uh, that the cops were taking selfies with the with the uh, the rioters, which isn't true. One cop nervously stood while a selfie was taken with him. From what I saw, um, the rest of the cops were attacked viciously. Uh, they don't take it seriously. They see politicians excusing it. They think that it's they actually think it's authoritarian that rioters remain in jail. Some of them not being given bail, like as if it's a dictatorship. And which is ridiculous to those of us who have actually suffered under dictatorships, that a judiciary that's separate from the Biden administration to begin with, a lot of those judges actually are ones that are appointed by Reagan and Bush, who are giving out the, the harsher sentences or not allowing the bail for the riders. Um, for people to to call that a form of authoritarianism is is just deeply offensive. They don't understand what authoritarianism is is. A lot of them, and this is one of the things that bothers me about the military veterans who have, who are, who are among the rioters, they took an oath to defend the Constitution above all else. And there's no greater violation of that oath than to try to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power and overturn an election, which is mandated by the Constitution. But people uh, who, who support Trump are so blinded by it, they don't see it that way. And mostly, they just see it as it was a protest, and then they do the whataboutism about what about Black Lives Matter, as if they equate an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States by by causing a, an interference with the peaceful transfer of power and, and reinstating Trump as president, as if they equate that with a movement for social justice, And even if they don't view it as social justice, a protest movement to enact policy changes is much different than a riot to overthrow the elected
1: government. But I want to ask you this because you're someone who actively fought against authoritarian regimes worldwide. Do you view Trumpism and what's occurring now in this country, especially at the state level, as voter rights are being eliminated and there is this active attempt to overturn the results of the election and potentially future elections as a real and potential threat to democracy in this country?
0: Yes, I view it as the greatest threat to democracy that perhaps this country has ever faced. The right to vote is absolute in the Constitution. It doesn't say you have the right to vote unless you forget your driver's license that day, for example. And I I would encourage anyone who thinks that voter ID laws are so reasonable to imagine that you get up and you go to vote and you realize when you get there that you left your driver's license in your other set of pants, or perhaps you lost it the day before and you couldn't get to the DMV in time. Suddenly you're disenfranchised and you're not allowed to vote. That's ridiculous. It's the right to vote, period. If you're 18 or older, right to vote, end of story. It's not whether you can present your state-issued ID or not. So, you know, especially in the absence of any evidence of widespread voter fraud, what the Republican Party is doing is having become a, a reactionary, a reactionary party of of fear and playing on people's political and and yes, racial fears and other fears, instead of being a party of ideas. The Republican Party. Used to be a party of ideas. It used to be a, a, a party of of George Will, um, of Bill Kristol, of others, um, who had conservative ideas. Now the Republican Party has no ideas. The Republican Party um, is a reactionary movement um, that, that in itself is is changing and amorphous and central themes just playing on people's fears, mixed with some cultism of following Trump. Um, if they had good ideas still, they'd be trying to convince people of their ideas to get elected, not spending their time trying to disenfranchise other people who would vote for the opposition.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. Now, there was a Washington Post op-ed that was recently um Put out that described the nightmare scenario of Trump running for president again in 2024 and how by that time the amateurish attempts of election delegitimization will have become more nuanced and polished. In addition to the slew of laws that are being pushed by GOP acolytes at the state level means that what we avoided in 2020 could actually come to pass in 2024. Do you fear that we're headed towards real authoritarianism in this country?
0: I fear that we're headed towards a a watered down form of authoritarianism light that means that that us and our children won't have the democracy that we had enjoyed and that had sustained the country. Um, I'm not sure that these attempts at And disenfranchising voters will survive all the Supreme Court challenges, but unfortunately, those won't happen until after the next election. And by then, it will be too late for a lot of people. the authoritarianism issue, again, there's degrees of authoritarianism. I think our institutions, if they could survive Trump, they can survive anything. But uh, there are a lot of people who had the right to vote who are not going to be able to vote when they go to the polls this next time. And that's tragic. And that could, you know, once a member of Congress gets elected, it's very hard to unseat them with incumbent advantage. One election that's flawed, like the next election is looking to be, could have consequences that that, you know, could go on for decades for certain districts. Um, I don't, I don't feel feel that it's the end of democracy, but this is certainly the most trying time for democracy between the big lie. Followed by attempts to disenfranchise opposition, it is the same tricks that authoritarian rulers pull. But I, I hope and pray that our, our institutions and our people are, are good enough to prevent that from happening.
1: You know, it's interesting what just um, came out over the news wire as we're speaking. Um, Rachel Maddow was reading excerpts from the transcript of a deposition, right under oath, of um, Rudy Giuliani, in which Giuliani explains. That he can't remember, but he thinks some of the conspiracy theories that he pushed about, you know, the 2020 election, about the big lie, came from social media. And that he didn't bother to check the truthfulness of the claims from his bombshell source who claimed that the election was stolen. This is the whole problem. Rudy fucking Kludi, this drunken former guy who everybody loved he was you know america's mayor has become a fucking joke right and he himself has joined this trump train of stupidity misinformation disinformation that gets promoted so who do you think that he was referring to about the bombshell source it's donald fucking trump calling him up and saying rudy they stole the election from me rudy You got to do something. Go on television. TV loves you. Go on Fox. Sean wants to speak to you about it. Tell him they stole the election and you have proof. And stupid Rudy, for whatever the reason may be, decides to do it making a complete fucking asshole of himself. But the worst part is that these people, many of whom are, I guess are your supporters. So by the way, to my listeners, sons of liberty, we need to replace these people, these Republicans. We have to go with Matthew on this topic because I said going back almost three years ago when I stood before the House Oversight Committee, I know Donald Trump. And this isn't the only prognostication that i made about trump i said many things all of full well, 80% have come true but the most vital one is that there would never be a peaceful transfer of power if donald trump lost the election because i know him i know what he's thinking i know how he thinks why unfortunately i was you know i was close to him for over a decade so i understand what he sees as his right and what the presidency can mean to him, not to be the president for America, but really for America to be subjugated to him, right? That's really, he wanted to be the Vladimir Putin of America. He wants to be the Kim Jong-un of America. When he saw Kim Jong-un have that military parade, what did this fucking dipshit decide? He wanted a military parade in his honor Right. Because he won the election, which, of course, had the biggest turnout. More people showed up to his than any other, you know, inauguration ever. He wanted a military parade as well, something that has never been done in this country before, because he was setting a precedent that nothing is going to happen in this country under Trump's administration, under his rule. That has ever happened before, and that's where we make a president into a dictator, a monarch, or a an, an oligarch, a uh, you know, a Putin, a you know, a Kim Jong Un, etc.
0: Right, he's a case study in authoritarianism.
1: Yeah, that he is. But you know, now, like can, I said to you, can I say, say one th-
0: thing about Rudy? And and I don't know if you want to include this or not. I'm just curious for your thoughts here. I look at Rudy as when he was a prosecutor, and this man. Who is has such a loose relationship with the truth, who's so unstable, um, who can just outright lie without any conscience. And I think about his cases as a prosecutor. And should they be reviewed? I don't know. I mean, maybe he wasn't so crazy back then, but but to know that that he was prosecuting cases and he's clearly he's clearly a dishonest person. And unstable. It's
1: sad because what he did is he, he also created, yes, but he also created a, metho- uh, a methodology for other prosecutors. And um, Judge Jed Rakoff wrote in an amazing piece in 2014, I believe it was in the New Yorker, Why Innocent People Plead Guilty. The problem, as he states, as Judge Rakoff um, here in the Southern District of New York states, is that prosecutors are no longer prosecuting. And they learned all this shit from Rudy and how he did what he did. Instead, they're only concerned about their conviction rate. And this is what happened to me. My whole case started and ended in 48 hours from a Friday to a Monday where I was told if I didn't plead guilty to these charges of which I didn't find out what they were until that Friday at 5.30 p.m. when they met when the prosecutors met with my attorney and basically said if he doesn't plead guilty on Monday we're filing an 85 page indictment against him that's going to include his wife. Now my wife had nothing to do with anything. Right? And all of the lies that Trump talked about my family. First of all, my wife isn't Russian. She's, she was born in the Ukraine. Different country, folks. Right? Only Trump doesn't understand that Russia and Ukraine are two different countries. But the biggest problem is they don't care anymore about prosecution. It's all about their conviction rates. So that then they can end up at the Lowenstein Sandlers, the Davis Polks, the, you know, Squire Patton Boggs. They could end up at Guggenheim Partners or, you know, the Paul Weiss firm where they get millions of dollars a year because there's this belief, this bullshit belief that they were formerly with that organization. And that they can help you, despite the fact you come in, the first thing they're doing is measuring you up on how much money they're going to take from you for the process, you know, in order to defend you for whatever it is that you're being charged. And they don't care. It's a big, giant game. And sadly enough, the judges, um, many of the judges, like my judge, Judge Pauly, he knew what was going on. He saw, he saw the facts, you know, Tax evasion. I'm a guy who's never been audited in my life. I've never filed a late tax return in my life. I've never not paid taxes. I paid millions of dollars. I paid $3 million in taxes in these two years that Donald Trump paid $1,500. And I'm the tax evader? Seriously? But I wasn't, there was no chance in the world I was going to put my wife anywhere near these people because they're animals. And the reason they're animals is Rudy taught them that the badge is the only thing that matters. You have prosecutorial immunity. You have the badge. You create the game. You create the result that you want. End of story. So should Rudy end up, if the cases that he was involved with be reviewed, that would be every single case. Literally from the day Rudy became the head of the Southern District's criminal division to today. And that's not possible. You know? America's mayor. America's mayor. Well, Matthew, let me thank you so much for your time. Uh, You're really an extraordinary guy. I mean, your story, like I said, is absolutely remarkable. You're a remarkable guy. I hope to have you back here on Mayor Culpa uh, in the future as things continue to unwind. Uh, Wish you all the best with Sons of Liberty. And to my listeners, uh, please check out your website, his website.
0: Thanks for having me on the show. It was great to talk to you.
1: Thank you, Matt. And now for today's mea culpa. In thinking about the latest move from Trump world to block Bannon, Meadows, and the rest of his inner circle from responding to the January 6th committee subpoenas, I wonder if this will finally be the wake-up call the Justice Department needs to begin holding these people accountable. Time and time and time again, we have let them ignore the law and laugh in our faces as we sought accountability, fucking sneering at us from the safety of Fox News. That all must end. If these men defy their subpoenas and we do not prosecute them, we will have lost all credibility. No one will think twice about doing any of this again, for there has been no accountability whatsoever. They can run, but they cannot hide, Norm Eisen recently said. This is not the Trump administration where the president could embark on a stonewalling campaign backed by bogus claims of executive privilege and a Justice Department that wouldn't enforce the law, creating impunity for those four years. These are the expectations laid before our feet. There should be no more excuses. If they defy these subpoenas, they should be arrested. If not the concept of equal justice, then it means absolutely nothing if you can get away with a crime by just ignoring the consequences. Each one of them is screwed and they fucking know it. I expect some of them to actually flip in the coming days if enough pressure is applied to them. But we cannot waver, so let's make this one stick. And thanks for listening. Mea Culp is brought to you by Audio Up. Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, and it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level.